In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Izzy Gazelle joins us this week on Money Tales. Izzy's a former special education teacher, restaurant owner, and stand-up comedian. He knows some great money jokes. Here are a few he shared with us. Sandy, why did the banker quit his job? Why, Cammie? He lost interest. <laughs> Cammie, why don't oysters share their pearls? Hmm, why? Because they're shellfish. <laughs> Sandy, why did the dollar go to the gym? Why? To get stronger against foreign currency. <laughs> now back to Izzy. Years ago, someone he knew approached him about buying a deli. The person described it as a gold mine. Izzy thought to himself, I've eaten deli food all my life. How hard could it be? Izzy quickly learned that all mines have shafts. Unfortunately, the deli didn't make it. As Izzy tells us, he walked away from this business experience with important money insights and takeaways. Today, Izzy is an organizational alchemist. He helps people navigate their internal log jams and emerge more confident, spontaneous, and effective. Through keynotes, workshops, and coaching sessions, Izzy delivers meaningful material in an enjoyable way. His unique approach is rooted at the intersection of improv, facilitation, and coaching. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Izzy hits on in this conversation. First, how he learned about savings from a school program when he was a kid that incented him to make weekly deposits into a bank account. Second, how having money does not give you power unless you abuse it. And third, the importance of hiring consultants and other experts when evaluating the purchase of a business rather than trying to do everything yourself the financial investment often is less than the cost of making mistakes. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now on to our conversation with Izzy G. Hello, Money Tales listeners. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Breaker. Sandy, I went to a really neat event last night here in Northern California at the Throckmorton Theater, I went to Tuesday Night Live Comedy. Isn't that the best, Cammie? Is that your first time? First time. Amazing. So you've been? I have been several times. Not since before the pandemic, but I've been there a bunch. A client that we serve is a big fan, the Throck, and knows a lot of the folks there and has invited me several times over the years. I thought it was appropriate for our guest, Izzy, who we'll introduce in a moment, since he knows a thing or two about humor. 
I'm really mesmerized by comics, comedians. I just think of this as one of the hardest jobs out there, so vulnerable. And the pay, my understanding, is really small in the beginning. Unless you make it big, you're not getting paid much. Yeah, there must be other compensation besides the financial aspects, I have to believe. Did you ever watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Mm-hmm. She made it seem so easy and she got so successful so quickly. I don't think that's the case. But, you know, I think these folks are not drawn to this art because of the money. They're drawn for their passion. Thank goodness they have that passion because there's nothing better on a Tuesday night than to just laugh your butt off. (laughs) And we did. These people are so talented. Well, let's ask Izzy a little bit about humor. Izzy Cassell, it is really wonderful to have you with us today on Money Tales. I'm looking forward to it. I've been excited about this since we made the date. (laughs) Welcome, Izzy. Thank you. And to start talking about comedy is great. I love it. Would you introduce yourself and provide a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted who you are today? I'm a New Yorker who began his professional career as a special education teacher in New York City and then went on to do stand-up comedy, which is not that different than being a special education teacher in New York City. (laughs) In fact, when I was teaching in the education department at Hunter College in New York in the graduate school, I really made the connection between the way a comedian holds an audience and the way a teacher holds an audience. So there's a performing art aspect to it and teaching, and there's a teaching aspect to comedy. I was hearing your conversation. It's not a lot of money, you said, but there's something else. And that something else is the laugh. The laugh is the currency that comedians exist on. Is that right? It just fuels you? The laughter fuels you, but it's also that when you're a comedian, that's what you're going for. And when you get it, you're successful. It's like hitting any target. Think about it. It's You have a room full of strangers who are sitting there basically saying, I paid money and I'm drinking, make me laugh. <laughs> and your craft and your art is designed so that when it's successful, you feel great. And when it's not, you die. You kill or you die. Those words are quite realistic. So I was doing stand-up comedy and was teaching comedy writing at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where I met business people who didn't want to be comedians, want to learn about humor. And this was in the early 90s when wellness was beginning. And I did humor to stress management and began working in organizations and corporations as a motivational humorist, added my improv experience to workshops. And I've been doing this since 1994, I think. I want to know about becoming a motivational humorist. But before we do... Is he, we'd like to go back in time and get a sense of what money was like when you were growing up. My parents are Holocaust survivors. I'm a second generation. So I grew up in a family that was really risk averse and security searching. And of course, money was helpful. I remember a pretty middle class growing upbringing until I was 13, which was my bar mitzvah. I'm Jewish. And my father had just lost his job. And what I remember, and this is the first time that I really felt different, I had two friends who were being bar mitzvahed in the same day in the temple. And and the three of us went in the temple in the morning. And in the evening, the two friends had an event at a catering hall and a party. And mine was in my house in the afternoon. 
And I can still remember recognizing that the distance was created because we didn't have the money. Distance with your friends? Distance between what other people were doing, what was successful, what I wanted. I don't remember being angry at my parents. Certainly at 13, you don't understand your parents. But I do remember feeling victimized. Were you talking to your parents or anyone else about these feelings at the time? No. (laughs) I didn't know them myself. And again, my parents being Holocaust survivors, I being the first son, those topics were not understandable. It wasn't that we didn't talk about money. My family, as I said, was middle class. We'd go away for the summers to the Catskill Mountains. So it wasn't that I felt a lack. You should be able to tell us if Mrs. Maisel is right on track or not. The show Mrs. Maisel is an exaggeration. But again, that family is very rich, upper class. We occasionally had people maybe come in and clean the house. Of course, my mom had to clean the house before the cleaning person came in. (laughs) But the idea about Mrs. Maisel is that it's an exaggeration. But I do understand it. If you remember the show Dirty Dancing, that also has some relevance to what goes on in the summers. But I didn't talk to my parents about money. My own journey with money has been self-discovery. And tell us about that self-discovery. Did it begin on your bar mitzvah day? Well, I guess it did because I remember getting savings bonds, the U.S. Treasury savings bonds, which I think were at that time seven year. You had to wait seven years to cash them in or something. So I remember feeling some sense of security. Having bonds. A treasury bond. Yeah, an e-bond. Yeah, a savings bond. So I remember, I think it was $25, which you can get for eighteen seventy-five, something like that. But I remember feeling that there's some security in my future. There's the other thing that I remember feeling really happy about was school savings. Each week, bringing some money into a, a school savings account. In New York, all the kids, when I was growing up, had the option of opening a savings account at a local bank. And each week you bring in a dollar, you bring in 50 cents and you get the book. And I remember looking at the book and beauty of compound interest. <laughs> you saw it happen immediately. I didn't understand the process, but I understood the result. So being able to have that book and have that sense of security of the future balanced the world I was living in. So I didn't know what my parents, their money issues. I don't remember other than my father losing his job and then struggling to find work that was both rewarding for him and rewarding for the family. So on my family side, it was the money issues that weren't there. And these little symbols gave me, I guess, a feeling of hope. So you had this hope and this feeling of security. You got out of school. Yeah, I had this hope. And I also think, and again, in hindsight from this discussion, that I began to recognize that there were systems in place that I could tap into that would balance the negative fears. Being a Holocaust survivor child, you live in a lot of fear of things being taken away, of uncertainty about the future, powerlessness. And having that bank book has a certain amount of power, especially when it's backed by the U.S. government. Has that feeling of wanting to have control and power, has that continued through your life? Yeah. Security and power. Yeah. I mean, teaching, comedy, performance, those are all power plays, not necessarily negative. You're in control. You're an artist, so you design it. And the power comes from people getting it. 
But with money, yeah, for sure. We'll go into what the ups and downs. Let's go there now. When you were done with school, did you know you wanted to become a teacher? I sort of backed into it. I loved history, so I wanted to be a major in history. But my family, you know, yeah, you can't do history. You got to have a job, that kind of thing. So I majored in psychology. And when I graduated, it was in the middle of the Vietnam War. And I had a low draft number, meaning I was going to be a cadet. I went to, to teaching as a substitute for being drafted. And I was a good teacher. Literally did it as a way of not going into um, conflict, which I was against politically. So then you decide to do some stand-up comedy. And I really appreciate you talking about the control component, because from an outside perspective, it feels like you don't have control. You're relying on the audience. But I love that you do. You're building these jokes. But tell us about this decision to try out comedy. Were you thinking about how much it would pay you? You think about that. You certainly think about TV shows and movies and the possibilities. You mentioned you watch Mrs. Maisel. That whole show is about her getting power. She starts off with her husband, has the power, and she's the writer, but doesn't get the credit. And then she steps on stage and feels that rush of power when the audience's laughs. That whole show is about her looking for ways to implement that power. It's always about her power. Susie's power is being recognized. Susie's search for recognition and control. And Mrs. Maisel's power is being recognized and being able to have people be interested in her. Her father was the same thing. Her father has power in his academic stuff and then loses it. So that whole show is about power. A really interesting conversation because a lot of people equate money with power and control. It is true, I guess, The illusion is if you have money, you will have power, but having money does not give you power unless you abuse it. I was reading a book a while ago that talked about all the lottery winners, big lottery winners, who either lost it all or would have given every penny back to go back to the life they had beforehand. Be careful what you wish for. When I think about the media and I think about all of the focus on the billionaires of the world... It does seem to me that society, or at least many media outlets, are pouring power into those with money and enabling it. It's a capitalistic society. Money is the goal. If you look back to history, the money is a separation. The power is in then making choices, but not everybody could handle that. And then what do you do with it? I know that from fame... People I know who have achieved a lot of success, and I know it from my level just as the moderate success, once you do very well, you hear this from musicians. They have an album, it's really successful, and then the challenge is, how do I do it again? Now, you would know this better than me. The money it probably makes people say, I, how do I keep adding to it? It's not enough. Why do ball players need $300 million to play baseball when they won't accept $250 million? Right. Those are really good points. Money can mean power, but it doesn't have to mean power. You don't need to have money to be powerful. There are people who are powerful without money. You have three-year-old influencers. They get the money, the influencers, they have the power. You know, I do a lot of leadership work and team building work. And that's what improv is also. Improv is essentially a balance of power between the leaders and the followers. And the thing about improv is you're always a leader or a follower back and forth. You have to learn to be both. In the world, 
money seems to be power because people can do what they want. But I think it's a misrepresentation of power because so much of that money power is misused. Yeah, it provides access. It provides access. It also provides entitlement and it provides an illusion that somehow you deserve it. Yeah, things can get complicated pretty quickly. It is complicated. Izzy, tell us how you connect humor to stress management, because I think money can be stressful. Having it can be stressful, not having it can be stressful. Look at the phrases, things like, you don't want to have the most expensive house on your block. Humor has always been a stress manager because laughter relieves tension. If you think about two people moving a heavy piece of furniture, they're very tense. If one person starts to laugh, you can't hold on to that piece of furniture. One person has to put it down. So laughter releases tension in the body. And tension is the physical manifestation of stress. Loosen up, lighten up, let it go. All of those phrases. Now, the way humor works is that humor always allows you to see a different point of view. A laugh is essentially your recognition that you see a different perspective. So, for example, when the comedian is setting up a joke, you know there's going to be a follow-up, a punchline to it. You just don't know what it is. And when the comedian puts that punchline out, it's generally from another point of view, something you didn't expect. And even without comedians, talk about kids. Kids say funny things to adults is a meme. Why? Because kids have one point of view on a situation and adult has a different point of view. So two truths can exist at the same time. A quick story, a friend has a seven-year-old daughter who gets really angry when her dad comes home from work and goes right to his office. And the little girl says to her, mommy, mommy, why does daddy go to his office? He promised to play with me when he came home and he went right into his office. The woman says, well, honey, he doesn't have time to finish his work during the day. So the little kid looks up and says, why don't they put him into a slower group? (laughs) (laughs) In her world, you put into a slower group. I love it. So the adult is able to see that incongruity. And the laugh is the recognition that we see two perspectives. And the ability to see more than one perspective on a situation is a key stress manager. You also have nervous laughter. Nothing is funny. The body needs to laugh to release the tension. If you're angry, if you're afraid, humor releases that tension. Sometimes it's by putting other people down. You feel bad, so you blame somebody. The racism, sexism, homophobe, that negative humor, sarcasm is a weapon. And we use weapons to relieve our stress. So those are just some of the ways that I think it works. So Izzy, I'm wondering, you mentioned earlier that you, over the course of your life, like anyone else has had some ups and downs with money. Could you tell us about a time when you experienced a money high and also a money low and whether humor played a role in your reaction to those experiences? In the negative parts, I think humor played a role down the road. We'll be able to laugh about this later on. Just connected to a quick question Cammy had asked. So I'm teaching, but I always had this drive for my creative outlet. I couldn't draw, I couldn't dance, I couldn't sing in my mind. I'm okay writing. I grew up with comedians. It's something that made sense to me. So that's what I decided to do. I said, I'm going to take a class on comedy writing. In New York, it's not hard to do. Again, so this is in the uh, early mid-80s. I started doing comedy and eventually got to be a middle act. Generally, there's three acts. There's the opener, the middle, and then the headliner. 
And this was in the early 90s when comedy was everywhere. Restaurants would have comedy nights and somehow got a chance to teach comedy writing at UMass Amherst. Business people didn't want to be comedians, they wanted to learn about humor. And that's where I was able to start doing programs for corporations, which is much nicer, higher level of inebriated heckler, I would say, (laughs) than in the sports bar in the backwoods of New Hampshire. And I found my calling between just doing comedy, which is a very tough business, and teaching and performing, which is really what I do well and facilitate. So while I was building a comedy routine, I had to have jobs. And and one of the jobs was salesman for a greeting card company, Photofolio and some others. Anyway, what happened is I was with a client in my hometown where I was living, Northampton, Massachusetts, walked into a restaurant. He said, this restaurant is for sale. It's a gold mine. He used the phrase, it's a gold mine. And I decided that I was going to buy it because I needed something to do. I've eaten deli food all my life. What would be hard about running a deli? What I didn't realize when he said there was a gold mine that all mines have shafts. <laughs> and that's actually the part that I bought. I was not suited to do run the business. I lasted about two years and I went bankrupt. Not only did I go bankrupt, I had taken money that my parents, the Holocaust survivors, had put aside for myself and my sister and took that money and used it as the down payment, a loan guarantee, without telling them. I didn't take my sister's money. I didn't take my sister's half. I took my half. I did not tell my mom. I, actually, I asked her if I could. She said no, but I did it anyway. Wow. It gets more Lifetime movie channel-ish. <laughs> so in 1986, 87, my mom is dying of lung cancer. I go take care of her. I'm bankrupt. I'm visiting her. The restaurant is closed. I'm looking to sell it. She has lung cancer. The day before she dies, she says to me, I want to see the bank book. Oh, oh, geez. The lowest moment of my life was the day before my mother died, when I had to show her the bank book and tell her that I took $30,000 that she has worked all her life to save for me and lost it. Oh, is he? And part B... The person who had the down payment, who gave me the buy-sell agreement, the money to buy the deli, was a liar. And he forged his grandma's signature. So I ended up with nothing. And that's why I had to go bankrupt. So within three days, all those things happened. And then I had a barrier, me and my sister. So that was my low point. Yeah, that sounds rough. Sounds really rough. What's your biggest takeaway from that experience? My biggest takeaway from that experience was that I had a certain naivete or hubris, pick your word. I could do this. I know delis. I know restaurants. I did not hire a consultant. I did not do due diligence in terms of spreadsheets. And I didn't realize that just because I knew the New York experience, where the waiters in the delis were men and women who needed a job, I'm in a college town where kids will call you up and say, I'm not coming into work today because my mom is sending me to Paris. I had a good manager. I did okay on the inside, but I had no structure to keep that money. And I remember driving around going, I'll never be able to buy a house. The one good thing, and here's a bright spot that came out, while I was in the bankruptcy procedure, early 90s, banks were sending credit cards to everybody. So I got a card while I was going through a bankruptcy procedure that I had not used, so I didn't have to report it. And that's how I started building my credit back up. 
but I'll tell you one thing. In the past 30 years, I pay every one of my credit card bills in full. Automatic withdrawal. Izzy, I want to thank you for sharing this story. What about a financial high? Well, the financial high is that I am now in a position where I have enough income coming in, both from my social securities, my royalties, and the work that I've done that my goal now is to keep from withdrawing from uh, my retirement money, other than required minimal distributions. I want to keep that. And the fact that I have had success with writing, with performing, with coaching, I don't budget well, I spend what I have, but I was able to put away and had some good financial advice with a good financial advisor that I was able to put away enough so that here I am where every day when I want to buy something, generally I can buy it. That's a big high. That's a big high. And and then one of the things that happened, yes, comedy is hard, but motivational speaking and performing, that was pretty good. When I first started speaking to groups, I remember there was a group here, a women's group, and they wanted to pay me $75 for a speech. And I said, no, I had learned from the National Speakers Association, your fee, you can be flexible. And I told my mom, I said, I turned it down. They wanted to give me $75. She says, they were going to give you $75 to talk for an hour and give you lunch. And you said, no. (laughs) There's that different perspective. (laughs) All perspective. So that's what I learned. And of course, one of the highs is when I reached a good level for keynote speaking to get that check. One other high, I did an Asia tour for facilitators, for teaching facilitators, and I'm also a cancer survivor. So I do programs for cancer survivors. And I went to Malaysia, to Taiwan, and to Australia. Not necessarily a tour, but different groups hired me. And most of the people at the times in Asia, they paid me in cash. So when I came home, I had $11,000 in cash. My challenge was, I have to report 10. I was going to ask, you had to fill out that paperwork to get back into the United States. What I did find out is they don't tax you on it. They just want to know that you have it. It's not illegal to do it, but I didn't know that. So I came home with $10,000 in cash, which I kept in the drawer and kept using for a while. And that was, I think, a monetary recognition that I had rebounded. I like that you could physically see it. Hold it. Yeah. Slip it through customs. You know, it just sounded quite scary to have that much cash in a drawer in your home. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was mostly in 20s or it was a lot. It was a lot of hundreds. Maybe. I think it was mostly hundreds, but it was a lot. But coming from where I came from, having gone through what I did and having had those thoughts after the bankruptcy that I'm afraid, homeless, never be able to really have a retirement plan. What am I going to do? And now being able to be in the position, this is another satisfying moment where I can choose which programs I want to do. And I know that it's for a purpose. It's not necessarily for survival, but it's for just continued what I would call success with money, given where I came from. That seemed like you've achieved that success and we congratulate you on that. And I can give it away. My sister has five kids, have four kids and 15 grandchildren. I've been working on my generosity. That's the other thing. There's gratitude and then there's generosity. So looking how to fuel that is one of the things I focus on. Izzy, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My partner, Laura, who's an artist. Her daughter just gave birth to a baby. Congratulations. Oh, 
exciting. Laura's first grandchild, and she's been looking forward to it for a long time. Never had kids, so I have a different perspective on it. So the conversation we've agreed to have is I've asked her, I said, look, let's sit down. We have a joint account. We have a joint Visa card, and that's it. So whenever we shared groceries, and we use that. But each of us has our own money and own responsibility. And Laura will buy things for the kids. All, and every time she'll say, well, do you want to go in on this? Do you want to go in on this? So what I am requesting of her is that we sit down and we budget for the grandkid for a year. How much do we want to agree to spend? So we spend $2,000 a year. Then I know that I don't have to every time deny or accept this invitation that it comes from us. So that's the next discussion we're going to have. Beautiful one. Sounds so important. Izzy, where can our listeners find you and connect with you? Probably not in a deli. (laughs) (laughs) No more corned beef for you. Actually, you know, I was in New York, pastrami guy. I was in New York the other day, I went to say bars. My website is izzyg.com, I-Z-Z-Y-G.com. And most of the information is there. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So Izzy Gassell, I post a lot about improv and humor and leadership. You've certainly inspired me to take some thoughts about the money trail, my money trail. Izzy, that's fantastic. We're glad we inspired you. You inspired us. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your humor with us on Money Tales. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.